time has arrived once again. Yeah, fans, you know what time it is. It's time for the Cubs Weekly Podcast, presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs and exclusive home of Chicago Cubs checking. What can you do? You can open online today at wintrust.com slash Cubs. And today, not only are we coming to you in podcast form, we're also coming to you on the Marquee Sports Network app. So jump over there right now. You can catch everything, all the highlights right here on the Cubs Weekly Podcast. And uh, speaking of highlights, we're running three wide today. In addition to our digital content manager over at Marquee Sports Network, Tony Andraki, it's our leadoff hitter, the Ivy Leaguer, our Marquee Sports Network contributor and analyst, Doug Glanville. And Doug, for those at home and for those out there watching who haven't seen your new show, Classes in Session on Marquee Sports Network, can you give us somewhat of a a snippet of of, of, a peek behind the curtain, somewhat of a synopsis for those who need to know? No, it's great to be uh, on the on the weekly pod here. Uh, no, <clears throat> soon there's no doubt. Uh, classes in session. It's kind of been a dream of mine because I've been teaching a course uh, currently at University of Connecticut uh, over the last few years, and it's really looked at the intersection of sport and society. And I wanted to peel back that curtain to talk to players, to talk to people who are around the game, who really see the impact of sport beyond the field. And it's really been enlightening to hear from, you know, Herm Edwards, Dusty Baker, so many figures who are uh, really respected throughout sport. And we dive into it. And it's a little bit of a classroom in a fun way, as uh, many guests have said, no, we're having fun in class here. Because I've walked through essays, I've walked through video, we have fantastic support in the graphics department, and the guests are fantastic. So uh, we're having a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to do more episodes. Now, Doug, before we bring Tony in on this one, uh, your first two guests on the first episode were Dusty Baker and Herm yeah. Edwards. Now, be- before I ask you something that maybe people at home don't know about these two guys, I don't even know if you know this, but Herm Edwards does not know how to tie a tie. <laughs> when you, myself, and Herm were all in Bristol, Connecticut, working at the, at the mothership, Herm used to tell me after shows, hey, hey, hey young man, hey, young man, uh, uh, <laughs> you do me a favor. Uh, I That's got like three ties laying on my desk. You go, you go tie some of those ties for me? He doesn't know how to tie a tie. I said, Herm, how did you get a job as a head coach in the National Football League and you don't know how to tie your own tie? I'm sure he has a whole lot better stuff that people don't know. So if you could enlighten us on that one. Yeah, well, the collared shirt, man. He's, he's destined to be a college football coach. So now Herm is uh, electric. As you know, his personality just shines through. And we spoke about just opportunity in terms of diversity at the top of leadership, management, coaches, And, you know, he had just so much to say about his impact and his influence on young people, but also professionals who are just uh, the elite athletes in the world. So uh, between him and having Dusty's story of just talking about his journey to becoming this very popular players manager that uh, continues to be successful. So there's just so much to learn. I try to see the guests as almost teachers and educators. I want them to have fun, like, and, and enlighten us. It's it's something that they have so much information to share. And those two definitely shared it. So, uh, you know, had a lot of fun, especially even off camera. Hopefully we'll have some outtakes. These, <laughs> those yeah. guys were hilarious. Yeah, we need to see the outtakes for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, like you just mentioned with Dusty Baker, he is this, he was a very popular players manager, as you talked about, but this legendary figure between the Cubs, the Reds, the Nationals, and now with the Astros and stuff. What is it about Dusty that makes him, such a unique manager that the players loved him so much and loved playing for him so much. Well, I had the pleasure of playing for him in the the playoff run 2003. And, you know, he really was someone that uh, embodied just 
a confidence, right? You, you always, it rubbed off on you that he had a tremendous belief and a faith in the team. Uh, he had a tremendous amount of success going in. So that was something that you knew as I, oh, this is someone who's won before, who uh, understands what it takes to win. He was a ph- phenomenal player in his own right. And, you know, he just has fun. He keeps it loose. You know, you, you recognize that you are, although it's a job and you have to perform, you also want to enjoy something that is still part of your childhood, your childhood dream. And so I, I love playing for Dusty and even competing against him. He did never back down and he always liked the psychology of the game. And, you know, I always had a great appreciation for how he cared about every single player on a personal level. So there's a legend goes that Dusty Baker is actually part of the, the duo that created the high five, invented yeah. it. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, how much you have talked to him about that before, but have you ever high five Dusty Baker and <laughs> what, what would that be like? Is there a little bit more meaning in it? Yeah. Well, first of all, he, uh, his hands are like, you know, the size of like the planet Mars. So, I mean, this guy <laughs> just boom takes over, but yeah, he, uh, he, we did ask him, I had a podcast with Jason Stark, uh, like last year, I think it was spring training about a year ago. And he, he is part of that. I think it was Burke who was the Glenn was Burke. Like Glenn Burke. So they had the tandem going and he credits more Burke, but they had this moment where they just said, all right, let's do this thing and became uh, something that now we don't even think about. It's in, in the culture of everything, let alone sports. All right, Doug, uh, you and Dusty Baker obviously have an unbelievable relationship. You had him on the show. Can't wait to take another look at that one. But uh, after your playing career wrapped up, you were able to do a whole lot of different things. You were able to go in in different directions. You wrote open editorials. You know, now you're a professor at University of Connecticut. What really led you down that path? And what gave you the, the knowledge to know that I can do this in addition to still being one foot in the game of baseball? First, I just have to thank my, my parents. Uh, you know, my father's been uh, gone for almost 18 years now, but growing up, both of them were so, uh, they put so much emphasis on education. Now, my mom was a teacher. My dad taught in Trinidad and Tobago before he came to the United States at 31, and then eventually went to med school and became a physician for many years. But they emphasized the sense of education. And part of that gave me the idea that although you can make it to the pinnacle of professional sports, Major League Baseball, whatever it may be, you're you're still going to have the second act. You're going to be 30 something, in my case, 34, 35, and you're wondering what's next. And the the idea of education opening up those doors about what education could afford you on the other side of a career, that was something that I paid a lot of attention to. So when I was playing, I was always close to the media. I always had a great respect. I loved writing from the time I could write. So I started to consider a life after baseball and these were avenues. And one big breaking moment for me was the steroid culture in baseball. And when I saw the Mitchell report was written that exposed all the steroids, PEDs in baseball, I noticed that the commentary was a lot more about name calling and name naming. And there was missing this part about, well, why do these players even think of doing this? And that really kicked off a, a media career. So the idea of expressing my ideas in writing, which was sort of a nod to my dad and his sort of poetic legacy and the education uh, as my mom as a teacher kind of came together. And, and as you know, Cole and, and Tony in this industry, you just don't know how firm your footing is. You know, you don't know if you know, something changes, organizations leave, networks close down. So I thought it was important to be nimble 
and to learn how to express these ideas on many different platforms. So if anything changes, uh, you know, then you can move on. And look, at ESPN, I was part of one point, part of a wave of layoffs in, in 2017. That was also very eye-opening to say, all right, wait a minute, now I have to make sure I have some other things going on. And so it's been great. And I feel empowered almost like before I even got into media, I had a lot of things going on and I'm, I'm back to that, but there's a lot of passions, whether it's a podcast with Jason Stark or the show classes in session, working for Marquee and being close to the original team I was drafted by, and then just ESPN with a national platform. So I feel very fortunate, especially in a horrific time with the pandemic and jobs and, and even retired players are struggling at times to find work or find that next passion. I feel very fortunate. Not only I, I could be gainfully employed, but I'm doing something I absolutely love to do. And one of the people you've come across throughout this industry, talking about the ESPN days too, is Pedro Gomez and his passing over the weekend just left this huge hole in the baseball world. I mean, he had such an impact on everybody that he came across from players and interviews to, to fellow media members. What was your experience with Pedro like? Well, Pedro was just um, the, the life, you know, just the sense of energy. And that's what's so devastating because he, he embodied life. He embodied this excitement and appreciation of just waking up in the morning. And every day, whenever he came to work, studio, he, he just brought an enthusiasm and appreciation for the craft, uh, for the sport, for the fact that he wanted to deliver news and, and be surprising and energetic about it. Uh, it was just constantly uh, a sense of mentorship. And uh, everybody that came across him will tell you stories, especially when they were younger, uh, how he would find ways to make sure he gave you uh, help, support, direction about how to perform in this professional stage. And he was, a, he was a consummate teammate and looked out. And because his story was kind of an underdog story, you know, his mom in Cuba and his dad leaving 1962 and how he was born. Uh, his mom had to travel with him to, to leave Cuba when she was eight months pregnant. I mean, all these stories about how he, you know, battled this challenge of finding the homeland and then re reinventing himself in America. So uh, he was just a kind, gentle person who always brought humanity to the table about, you know, our greater good and our better angels. So that, that's probably just a snippet of why he's so greatly missed. I mean, he became part of baseball, just the coverage, the sensibility his voice for Latin America and the bilingual component of what is such a fabric of, of Major League Baseball. And he, he really did it dignity. So uh, it's, it's really, it's devastating. I, I didn't do much yesterday. I just tried to learn what happened. I tried to talk to colleagues. I'm still watching and reading everything about him. And uh, you know, it's just a, it just freezes you in your tracks, especially at a time there's so much loss out there. And you're not really sure how you can pay your respects. So yeah. you're just doing what you can. Yeah, Pedro Gomez came here from Cuba, went to high school with Jose Canseco. And, you know, he is a guy who, when, when you think about baseball reporting, he is the personification of it, no doubt about that. And when you also just think of, you know, the next generation and, and how Pedro Gomez, he just made everyone feel comfortable. Uh, Doug, I don't know if you knew the story of Howard Bryant was covering Tony La Russa and the Oakland A's and Tony La Russa took him to task on, you know, a, a, a questionable headline. But Pedro Gomez jumped in and said, Tony, you know that we, we, we don't write those headlines. We just write the actual articles. And, and for him to go out there not knowing who Howard Bryant was and for Tony La Russa 
you know, to pretty much air him out in front of everybody else. It just lets you know the kind of person that Pedro Gomez was and any interaction that, that I ever had with Pedro Gomez. I mean, it was A plus across the board, Doug. No, so true. And, and I was fortunate to do many games on the road with him when he was the reporter. And you watch this man walk on the field and he was a star. I mean, players sought him out uh, and you saw the bond he had for players from Latin America. You saw the, you know, the bilingual translations he could do on the fly. He was also very sharing. So you'd get the information from player David Ortiz, whoever, and then pass it on to others. And like you said, with young people to mentor, he was always there, especially if you were pioneering, you know, women in sports, you know, black commentators, he was always looking out to make sure that they felt welcomed and that they had the tools they needed. Uh, he was just universally loved and with, with good reason because he just brought love everywhere he went. Uh, and you just saw him with such joy. You know, we always say, como estas hermano, right? That's what we say all the time. Like just every time you picked up the phone, you send a text message, so uh, it, it is, it's devastating and not just for ESPN, not just for baseball, but, you know, really for, for a nation, a world who lost someone who was just so kind and so professional. Absolutely. Our condolences go out to Pedro Gomez's family from the Chicago Cubs to the Gomez's. Thank you for everything that he was able to do and all his fine reporting in the game that we love, Major League Baseball. Now, there's no easy turn, of course, when you talk about someone who's, who's passed, but uh, let's, let's get back to the Chicago Cubs and let's talk about that left field position because a uh, new acquisition, of course, Doug, Doug, Jock Peterson from the Los Angeles Dodgers, he's going to fill the hole that was left behind by Kyle Schwarber, who's now a member of the Washington Nationals. And, and seeing Jock play over the last few years when I was on the West Coast, I mean, I think he's going to be a welcome addition and, and that everyday playing time, that's going to be something that, that he's looking for. And I think he's going to be able to get it here. Well, I'll tell you, Jack Peterson, well, for one, I picked him very early, like his first home run derby, I picked him. And I think he came in second. I mean, this guy has epic power and, uh, and what he's become, and it's sometimes his challenge is sort of the three outcome guy, right? The home run, the walk, he has a good sense of the zone. He'll strike out a lot. But the more he's been able to sort of bring the ball down in his zone, which he's had definite flashes of success in that, that's where he's so dangerous. Um, because he has so much power to all fields. So you think of Schwarber, who was sort of in that three outcome range, but Jock Peterson gives you a little bit more sort of athleticism, I'd say, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, uh, you know, a little bit more spring to him. And it, so there's a style that there's a similarity, but you, you can see that Peterson, you know, just has a certain rawness that he's refined very well over the last few years. So I think it's a, a fair replacement. And, uh, you know, Schwarber was a guy who has the, po the postseason legacy. He has so much that he gave to the Chicago family. I got to cover him in Indiana during the Super Regionals at one point. I think Schwarber still has some phenomenal years in front of him. I think he'll hit for a higher average. But I think there's times that there's a change of scenery that makes a difference. And Peterson's a, a great substitution and a great replacement to do that for Chicago, Chicago Cubs baseball. Yeah, and one of the things Peterson does, too, is he has the ability to play all three outfield spots. He probably will mostly stick in left field, we imagine, but, you know, maybe back up at center field for Ian Happ or move over to right field or whatever. Um, but playing at Wrigley, we know, especially in the outfield with the sun during day games and the wind, it's so much different than playing anywhere else. So, Doug, if Peterson came to you and said, you know, hey, Doug, how, how should I go about playing the outfield at Wrigley Field? What advice do you have for me? What would you say to him? First and foremost, I would say you got to take a lot of balls off the bat in practice. You have to really work it 
because Wrigley is is unique. You know, you're dealing with wind, day games in the sun, and they're, it's tough. You're also dealing with a brick wall. <laughs> okay, so you are not trying to mess with this wall. So you have to really understand how to navigate the wall play, which is unpredictable. You have ivy and all these factors. So you never give up on a ball in the outfield. So I found that more practice always helped me, just taking routines, you know, balls off the bat and batting practice. They, they make a big difference. And he's a good athlete. He's a very good outfielder, can throw. A lot of things he's bringing to the table. So I, I see him picking it up well. But it's a great point you make, Tony, about his ability to play all positions. That will give the Cubs a lot of different looks. And, and he matches up really well, very dangerous against right-handed pitching. And you know, I see him being a good uh, a good fit for the Chicago Cubs. Absolutely, and Jock, he can play all three outfield positions, and if need be, in, in emergency situations, you can throw him over at first base. He can feel his position there, so he will be a definite welcome addition to David Ross's lineup. Now, one thing that they're still trying to get figured out, uh, it's that leadoff spot. Ian Happ, he filled in quite nicely last year, but Doug, it's, it's, there's a little more than meets the eye when it comes to hitting in that first slot. I mean, you know it. You, you were there plenty of times. What, what goes into an actual leadoff hitter and, and the mental makeup? Because it's, it's a little bit different than hitting at other places in the lineup. It's a state of readiness, and, and it's a, a constant readiness to lead. And that's tough. It, it, it attacks you after a while, especially the games keep coming at you day in, day out. You're going to face, you know, some ace pitcher and you're the first view into it for your whole team. So you have to learn how to communicate with your teammates, be ready right out of the gate. Because, you know, there's some pitchers don't do well in the first inning. You have to be that first inning guy. And whatever it takes to be ready on that first pitch, you have to be that player. And then on top of that, when you get on base or should you get on base, you're the spark. You're the way that you can set the tone. And we know the numbers speak to how much of an advantage it is when you score first, when you can get on the board, put pressure on them. So that pressure, you have to keep on them at all times when you're that leadoff guy. And it's, it's no, no secret why a lot of times that becomes a revolving door <laughs> during a season because it just kind of wears on. You got to switch it out. You get cold. The thing I like about a Hap or even a Jack Peterson is that they're very good with the strike zone. They've, you know, they've improved a lot. And what that does is even if you're not hitting, you're not as strong, you're going to still get on base. And that makes it more of an asset as a leadoff guy to be able to be on base in multiple ways and different strategies. So the more they can keep that pressure on, the more they can help their team get ahead early. And then if the pitching can hold up, you can keep those leads. Yeah, and I mean, as of right now, too, it's looking like there won't be a designated hitter in the National League for 2021. So the leadoff spot will be important, too, most likely coming after the pitcher, depending on, on where David Ross wants to slot that pitching spot. But, um, you know, between some of the rules that we do know, between the, the league and players union has reportedly come to this deal that includes some of the rules we saw last year, like runners starting on second base in extra innings and seven inning double headers and stuff. Doug, what were your, what were your thoughts on that? Did you like some of those things? Like I, I love the, the extra inning rule. I didn't think I would going into it, but it was a lot of fun. It, it created a lot of excitement with a guy on second base out there. Well, they had to innovate this year and that's probably good for baseball. Baseball is, you know, gets into that rut of tradition, which I appreciate in the old school sensibility but it's also important that they stay vibrant, stay relevant to the next generation, just try stuff. And whether it's seventh innings or, you know, seven inning doubleheaders, all these ways that they innovated this season, uh, they pushed the envelope. And some of those things stayed with us. 
Uh, yeah, like you, certainly at first it was strange with this runner teleporting out of the sky and ending up on second base. <laughs> and, you know, you know how it is when you're keeping score, you're like, well, how did this guy get there? I, right. I mean, I don't know. We just put him there. But it was in the spirit of dealing with a pandemic and trying to make sure you don't play 23 innings and getting people in and out of games that they wanted to speed this up. And they kind of came across something that even the coaches and managers found to be very useful and interesting. So that's something they'll, they uh, are going back to the well on. And I'm sure they're going to consider a lot of different things, as you mentioned, whether the DH and, and the negotiations coming forward for 2021-22. But baseball did a good job of, first of all, finishing a season it started, which was uncertain in a pandemic. And they found ways to do things on the fly even to make sure the game flowed well. And some of those are going to stay. And that's something that baseball has been doing fairly well in recent times, not afraid to make some changes. And at some point they're going to figure out what's going to stick and stay. And then you'll have a whole new culture of baseball. Yeah. It appears as if that pitchers will go back in the batter's box uh, this season. Who knows? still, it's a fluid situation, but the CBA, Doug, it does expire on December 1st. So do you think that we may see that universal DH once the, the rules are revised again? You might. It's, it's definitely possible. I mean, right now they are trying to do a little better job of being more peaceful and getting things done. I mean, think about last, last spring. I mean, they were negotiating early on and they didn't start till like, what, July 23rd or somewhere in the ballpark. So there was a lot of fighting, and that's typical of this relationship between owners and players. But they seem to be a little bit more ahead of the curve to getting this thing moving. And that's a good sign because you go into negotiations, it's going to be contentious, it's going to be nasty, and they have some serious economic issues to weigh. So they're going to have to decide these trade-offs. And some of those trade-offs may be the DH or how the playoff format might be handled, whether they have the 14 teams that's being discussed. All that's on the table and hopefully they you know, get this season in and then find a way to do it relatively peaceful along the way so that it will be seamless into 2022. Doug, would you like to see the DH in the National League? I know you said you're kind of an old school guy, but do you like that addition long term? I think from a practical standpoint, it makes sense. I, I understood why uh, they tried it. And I understood why they think it's something that you can hold on to. What I did like, and I played in both leagues, I, mean, I did like the National League for the fact of state of readiness that you had to be as a player. You could come in the fourth, third, pinch hit, double switching. I liked all those strategic components to it. Mm -hmm. And yes, the pitchers weren't always the greatest hitters on earth, but I liked the fact that you had to make decisions about, are you going to send them out there? Are you going to move the runner? Are you going to butt? Are you going to pinch hit here? Uh, those elements were cool. And in the American League, when I was with Texas, I remember facing, I think it was like a uh, uh, Franklin for the Mariners and uh, you know you know we might have he might have given up like 10 hits in three innings or something crazy and I was like wait a minute he's still out there you know but in the American League they were like yeah we're gonna pitch him and then he might pitch his way back in the ball game and give us six innings and then we could use our bullpen as opposed to like up oh, third in and get him out of there because his, his turn at bat so I, so so we'll see how this plays out I still would miss some of the strategic elements of the pitcher hitting not because he's hitting but because of the decisions you make from his hitting slot. I think that's what I would miss. But I do understand that, you know, hitters, like, like we just spoke, Kyle Schwarber might have much more longevity in the game. There's more jobs. There's more opportunities for offense. I think if you're going to go down that road, though, as a DH, then let's try to bring in other elements to try to encourage or 
reward, more contact, more balls in play, you know, get some of that hit and run, stolen bases. You just, it, it would be good to bring in these other elements if you're going to shift so much to this hitting side so that you can see the true athleticism of these players to put some pressure by having the ball more in play and creating more action because there's just way too much dead time. Home run, strikeout, walk, yeah. and then 50. You know, that's a huge percentage of the game right now. Yeah, and when it comes to DH, uh, some people out there better be careful what they ask for because not everybody is Eddie Murray or Edgar Martinez or Harold Baines, for that matter. Being a designated hitter, easier said than done. Now, Doug, you know, I, I, I feel terrible if we let you out of here without making a reference to this, but it's Black History Month. And when you take a look at some of the numbers of, of Black American baseball players in the game of Major League Baseball, I mean, they've waned over the years and considerably why do you think that is? I mean, we talked about it on our Black History Month show on Marquee Sports Network that there hasn't been a full-time African-American catcher since Charles Johnson, and that was 2005. I mean, there's a whole generation of young baseball fans who have never seen an African-American catcher on the field. I mean, I, yeah, I played against Charles Johnson in college, so that tells you what you need to know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's. I, I don't think there's a singular answer about the decline. I mean, it really relates to a lot of factors. It'd be a good classes in session, actually. You need to talk about even the economics of when neighborhoods, uh, when people leave the city who have resources and go to the suburbs, a lot of these type of sports follow when you have to invest in land and, and resources to create these leagues. And so the cities which have been, which are predominantly uh, African-American or people of color have often lost in that battle for resources. And so these leagues got, you know, underfunded as did their neighborhoods and that became an element of it. So you see a lot of the players who are black may come from suburbs or other, other locations uh, also. So you have that factor and there's sometimes the challenge, as you mentioned, even when you talk about leadership, how is it structured where you have these opportunities to really develop and grow in the sport beyond your, either your playing days or to be in a, a sort of a role playing environment where you could, still have longevity in the game. And so, you know, baseball has really declined in, in those regards and they're trying, they're certainly trying elements to capture it. They're trying to uh, support diversity, not as sort of charity, but truly because there's qualified people that had been overlooked since the dawn of time because of the color of their skin, because they weren't uh, in the opportunity sort of pathway or, or pipeline. And so right now we are confronting a lot of these challenges. And you saw the Super Bowl, Tampa Bay Bucks win. They have a extremely diverse coaching staff. Mm. And that, that sort of underscores that they're incredibly qualified people and, and that it's important to see representation uh, when you have the power to do so. Uh, baseball struggled because they've been kind of insular. And when you have a system that kind of rewards itself and power, power always tends to concentrate on rewarding its own power, right? That's what it does. Uh, and it also spends a lot, a lot of time telling the story to justify why they're in power in the first place. So when you do that, you tend not to be very open to bringing in different kinds of people. And, and you see that as a threat to your structure. So this is where baseball can, can shine. And you see someone like Theo Epstein who's really rethought not only just hiring, but also the game itself. Uh, these are the type of um, changes that will help open it up. And, and it's great to open it up because you're open up to different kinds of people, therefore different kinds of fans and different uh, approaches to the game. Uh, we had Joe Madden on our podcast, uh, Starkville, not long ago, and he said, 
everybody's making the same car. That's the problem. And you don't get these different points of view and vantage points to really challenge you to think outside the box. Uh, that's inspiring. And, and so baseball, which you know, claims its national pastime heritage, is taking steps. I think they're, they've had a lot of success in hiring uh, at least below the top echelons of power in baseball. They've been able to get more diversity. Now they just have to continue that going forward. So, so in baseball, as players on the field, those challenges still face uh, the players also. And the more we can understand that it isn't really about checking a box, but understanding what it means to live in that box and understanding that it's beyond just a, a categorization, but it's a, hu a human experience that we all share and all could be inspired on regardless of your background. And, and more we can do that and bring that into one space, uh, the more we can move forward with being truly representative of all walks of life and all people. Absolutely. And I know that baseball has been huge in my upbringing and development, as is yours, Tony, you too. So we will see where things take us to the future and beyond. And uh, when it comes to the future, you know you're going to want to watch Classes in Session. It's Tuesday, the 16th on Marquee Sports Network, 830. It's hosted by the one and only Doug Glanville. Doug, always a pleasure. Every time you come on our show or any of the podcasts, I feel like I'm just a little bit smarter by being in your presence. Thanks for the time, man. Appreciate it as always. Yeah, Cole, Tony, honored to be on with you and have a great time. Talk to you Absolutely. soon. Absolutely. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast brought to you by Trust. And as always, remember, download the pod on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And for Doug and Tony, I'm Cole Wright. We'll see you guys next time.